so much stuff to get in order here before we get underway. It's really good to be in the Bayview pulpit again this evening. I look out and see so many familiar faces. Um, I haven't been at Bayview preaching for quite a while because of the study center's uh, heavy schedule and the uh, chapel work in Orange County. And so it's good to see so many of my friends and then from other congregations as well. We welcome you tonight and I trust that you'll uh, be blessed by this service. Good to see so many friends from other churches here as well. I want to thank those of you from Bayview especially. I was reminded this week of um, how much I love you. Uh, it wasn't a good week last week in Dr. Bonson's life. I, uh, I don't know, I sometimes, I guess, pity myself and get a little down because um, things are kind of tough when you've got heart condition and other kinds of health problems and trying to run a home as a single parent and all these things. It just seems like things come in at you and then last week I found out I have diabetes. And uh, boy, that was so hard to take. And um, when your card came with all those individual greetings, I'm going to tell you, you brought me to tears. I thank you so much for your support and your prayer. And I love you all. And I hope that tonight I can return the favor by ministering to you from God's word. St. Matthew tells us that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm sure you're familiar with the well-known expression, the seven sayings from the cross. You know what the reference of that saying is. If you gather together all the things Jesus said in the four Gospels as they recount the death of our Savior, you find that there were seven distinct sayings from the cross. The first was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thieves, probably one of the revolutionaries that was crucified with him. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And as he beheld his own earthly mother and the beloved disciple, he said, Woman, behold your son. And then to John himself, Behold your mother. Most New Testament historians believe that it was after the third saying from the cross that darkness descended over the land. The last four sayings were, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A citation from Psalm 22.1. And then Jesus cried, I thirst, a reminder of his true human nature and the physical suffering through which he went. John tells us he declared, it is finished. And then finally, Father, into thy hands, I commend my spirit. A citation from Psalm 31.5. Seven sayings from the cross but Matthew records only one of them. Of these seven utterances, the Gospel writer records only the statement of Jesus that he cried with a loud voice, My God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew says he cried with a loud voice. I know some of you here love Bach. I hope many of you love Bach. Those of you who are fans of Bach will be familiar with his magnificent passion of St. Matthew. Unfortunately, though, and uncharacteristically for Bach, who was a Christian, the passion of St. Matthew as it's presented does not accurately reflect what Matthew, the historical writer, tells us about this saying from the cross. Those who know the work of Bach will recognize the soloist singing these words, but when these are sung, the organ hushes and the soloist in a restrained, drawn-down voice sings, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In fact, according to Matthew, Jesus did not speak these words softly. He spoke them with great exertion, startling exertion for a man who had hung on the cross for this long. And with a raised voice, he shouted to God in Aramaic, 
the language that was common to his people. He shouted, why? Why? Verse 50 of Matthew's account tells us that Jesus cried again at the very end with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. This is interesting because Matthew does not tell us what Jesus cried at the very end. We know from John's Gospel that at the very end he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. Matthew tells us he did cry at the end. But there's a reason why the Gospel writer doesn't tell us what Jesus said there. Matthew wants all of our attention as he tells the story, as he recounts it. He wants all of our attention on this specific statement of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The entire focus for Matthew then as he relates the death of Jesus Christ, as he expounds on the death and the significance of that death is on this one single forceful expression. This is his reading of what it meant for the Savior to suffer. This is what the cross was all about, and this is what we as the followers of Jesus must understand, according to St. Matthew. Verse 46 of Matthew's account is the only verse we'll be looking at this evening, but there will be plenty there for us to think about. Verse 46, however, in context, should be seen as the elucidation of the verse preceding. In the 45th verse we read, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. It's the next verse, you see, that offers Matthew's interpretation, Matthew's explanation of what happened. Why is it the darkness covered the land for those three hours? The great mystery of nature. There have been those who want to explain away the miracles of the Bible by talking about coincidences in the natural world. And I can't say for sure that all of the miracles of the Bible could not be accounted for that way. There may be some that are like that, but this one cannot be accounted for as an eclipse of the sun, for you know that it took place at Passover season, which is the full moon. It's not possible to have an eclipse of the sun during the full moon. Nor is it likely that the intensity of the darkness and the extent of the darkness could be accounted for if we just think of it as a dust storm or some kind of intense thunderclouds. The darkness is a direct act of God. It's an objective sign in the natural world that carried great theological import. Now, what is that import? I'm going to suggest in a few moments that Matthew tells us the import of that darkness when he gives us this one single statement of Jesus about being forsaken by God. But, you know, even before we get to the next verse, if we were students of the Bible, we might know what this darkness is all about. And speaking of Jehovah's dreadful punishment that was going to fall upon Israel for her sins, do you remember how the Old Testament prophet Amos declared, and it shall come to pass in that day? You Old Testament students know that when you read that expression, in that day, you better slow down. Pay attention and reflect on that. In that great coming day. It means so many different things in the Old Testament that from a New Testament perspective we can see more clearly laid out, the great coming day of the Lord. But Amos tells us this, It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord Jehovah, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. This is the same feared day of the Lord that Zephaniah predicted with great gloom in his prophecy. He said, the great day of Jehovah is near. It is near and hastens greatly, even the voice of the day of Jehovah. The mighty man cries there bitterly. That day is a day of gloom, a day of trouble and distress, a day of wasting and desolation, a day of darkness of gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. See, if you were a student of the Old Testament, you should have understood the darkness at noon. 
But of course, I speak to the Jews' shame, don't I? Because shouldn't they have been students of the Old Testament? Should they not have been reading the Old Covenant Scriptures? Should they not have been in anticipation of that coming Messiah and the great day that he would bring with them? When God would make things right, he would punish the wicked, establish his kingdom, and bring prosperity for his people. Shouldn't the Jews have understood this? If you want to know how totally out of connection they were with the teaching of God's word and the meaning of this day, read on. Go home this evening and study this for yourself and see what they understood when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he cries in Aramaic, he says, Eli, Eli. And those standing by say, he's crying for Elijah to come and save him. You know, if it weren't so pathetic, we would laugh at the stupidity. In this great darkness with the Son of God hanging on the cross, they should have known it's the day of the Lord, the day of judgment. It has come, even as the prophets had warned. And even the mighty man cries in bitterness in that day with the gloom and judgment that God brings upon his people for their sin. It's fascinating. The gospel records tell us that when Jesus was born, the night was lightened as though it were day because of the glory and the brightness of the angels. And on the day that Jesus died, the day was darkened as night. Those who had followed Jesus in his earthly ministry might have understood what he was all about as he hung upon the cross. Even if they had forgotten their Old Testament instruction, they might have remembered how Jesus taught them the nature of hell itself. What do you remember about Jesus' teaching of hell? It's not a popular subject in our day. Many people who call themselves Christians don't even think the Bible really should be believed about that. That's just one of those cultural things, that, some of the baggage of the ancient world that comes to us with the Bible, but we can put that aside. Really, God's interested in much more positive things. We want a much more upbeat religion. None of this stuff about judgment and, a, and, and, and everlasting torment and so forth. What we want is the kind of love that Jesus taught about. That's what people will tell you. Of course, the amazing thing is, if you look through the entire Bible, from one cover to the other, the person who spoke most about hell was Jesus. You remember what he said about it? How he described it as the gnawing of the worm, as the tormenting fire that never goes out. What else did Jesus say about hell? Four times in Matthew's Gospel, he makes passing reference to it as simply what? The outer darkness. The outer darkness. Are you afraid of the dark? I, I happen to know the answer for every single one of you, but it's not the one we necessarily would hear if we all went through this, you know. Yes, we're all afraid of the dark. When you're not afraid of the dark, what you usually mean is, I've gotten used to my bedroom, I'm not afraid of the dark in my bedroom anymore. Go down into some deep cave where no one tells you what's around, what kind of creatures might be there, what kind of physical objects you might trip over or cut yourself with or whatever it may be, and we'll ask, are you afraid of the dark? One of the most tormenting things to us is to be in the dark. Jesus speaks of hell as the outer darkness. Peter speaks of hell in similar terms when in his second epistle he writes of those angels that fell. God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And Jude puts the same thought in these words when he says, he has reserved them in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. The judgment of the great day came when Jesus died. 
And for that reason, the outer darkness descended for three hours. Jesus will then be dead for three days and then rise from the dead to live forevermore. But on this day, the great darkness was already God's objective sign in nature that the day of judgment had come and hell had descended on his son. The darkness which came over the land for these three hours was God's own declaration then that his son was undergoing the curse of his people. And that's why Matthew then goes on and simply focuses on this one saying of Jesus. Matthew brings out the significance of that darkness by looking simply at the words of Jesus, first pronounced in Aramaic, I think to probably bring us right there to the day in which it happened, and then explaining in Greek, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Jesus spoke these words, he was quoting from Psalm 22. And the fact that Jesus applied that psalm to himself on the day in which he died undoubtedly alerted Matthew, one of the followers of Jesus, alerted Matthew to the great messianic significance of that psalm. And so if you'll go back and look at Psalm 22, we read it in our responsive reading this evening, you will notice how much of this psalm gets incorporated, woven into Matthew's detailing of the death of Jesus himself. You'll find allusions to this psalm in the 35th verse of Matthew 27, in verse 39, and verse 43. It must have been quite a learning experience for Matthew after Jesus rose from the dead to go back and read his Old Testament. I know that's true. I'm just not saying this snidely about the disciples. I wouldn't have done any better than them. None of us would have. But the Bible tells us it wasn't until after the resurrection of Jesus that they understood very much of what he taught. They were so far from understanding what Jesus was all about, this one who would come and die as a suffering Savior, that on the very night in which he ordained that supper that we rejoice to take, I hope week by week, but regularly in your churches, the Lord's Supper, on that very night, while he's talking about the cup of the new covenant in his blood, when he's talking about his own sacrifice, he finds his disciples arguing with one another about who's the greatest. Well, wouldn't you like to give them a theology quiz right then to humble them? If you're so great, why don't you understand what's going on here? But anyway, after the resurrection, the Bible tells us they did understand. And Matthew, remembering Jesus crying from Psalm 22, must have gone back and opened his Old Testament and said, this is incredible. If you read Psalm 22, it's prophetic. It's not simply that David put into um, wonderful words expressions of suffering that Jesus could say, well, this is a good literary illusion. I'll use these words. These words were prophetic of the coming Messiah. That's why there's so many detailed um, aspects of the psalm that we find now in Matthew's account. How they wagged their heads, and they mocked him, and they parted their garments, and on and on. And yet, Psalm 22, though it was appropriate for David to write about himself, Psalm 22 could never have been understood properly to apply simply to David. You have your bulletins in front of you. Look at it with me. Let me give you an example of the appropriateness of the psalm, and yet, in a sense, someone could say these words much more appropriately. David had written of God, you brought me out of the womb, you made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. It is true. God had brought David out of the womb. How much more true is it that God was active at the birth of the Messiah himself, taking him from his mother's womb, who was a virgin? We know that what David wrote could be said of him. It could be said better of the son of David, the Messiah. David went on to say, speaking of his turmoil and the day of his distress, 
He said, you lay me in the dust of death. Sometimes I have to kind of prick my students. I say, wake up. Do you hear that? Do you know what you're reading? Are you paying attention? Are you reflecting on this? Do I have to prick you tonight too? David says, you lay me in the dust of death. What's wrong with that? Did David die? Well, eventually he did, but he didn't die in this song. David is assured that God will hear him and deliver him. David is not going to go down to the dust of death, but he is writing in that way because he writes not simply of his own sorrow and distress, he writes of that, the Messiah to come, who will be laid in the dust of death. Later in the psalm, we see that David understands his cry as a cry for help. He says of Jehovah, he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one, he has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Jesus sends this up as a cry for help as well, in a sense. But God does hide his face from Jesus. And then his help is seen. What agonizing patience it would take if you were a faithful student of the Old Testament, to wait for the resurrection. But you should have known it would come. Nevertheless, David can speak these words, but he speaks of a greater David. He speaks of one to come. And then toward the end of the psalm, David says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. David sees that the gospel, the good news, salvation will go to the ends of the earth, even to the Gentiles. He looks forward to this agony as leading to victory and to great victory for God and his cause on earth. Now, the people should have known all this. When Jesus cried out from Psalm 22, they should have said, it's the Messiah, it's David's son. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Instead, they went looking for Elijah because they thought Jesus was looking for the prophet to come and to deliver him. And Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. I want you to see tonight the unequaled agony of the Savior but also to see the objective agony of the Savior in this saying. And finally, the atoning agony of the Savior as he cried these words. First, the unequaled agony. I know that there are many of you here tonight who have experienced the very deep and I think very distinctive pain of abandonment. Actually, it's probably true all of you have, one time or another. Not everyone's greatest experience of abandonment takes place, say, in adulthood when there's a great attention given to it. But throughout our lives, we, um, we struggle with what it is to be forsaken. I take that very seriously. I, I, I have to confess, probably before some really painful things happened to me, I didn't take it seriously enough. But I think all of us know what it is to worry about people turning their backs on us. From childhood, it, it, it may have begun when that day out on the baseball diamond, you weren't picked to play on one of the teams. It could be just a little thing like that. Or it could have been that in your teenage years, your parents got to fighting and bickering and they split. And you felt abandoned. Maybe you felt it was your fault. We all have different kinds of experience of being forsaken by people. But many of you know a very distinctive kind of pain and agony that comes when a loved one forsakes you. Maybe, um, maybe a child that you have raised for years, have given attention to, and have done your best to be a good parent. All of us who are parents know that feeling. It's like we know it's not good enough, but we're doing our best. And then 
your child has turned on you. Maybe without so much as a word has just left and there's no more contact. Maybe has spit in your face. But you've lost a child. And you've been abandoned. And you've cried about that. And you've cried about that. And you're crying. I wouldn't be surprised that you ask God why. It had to happen that way. Maybe some of you have lost a husband or a wife. It's one thing to lose them to death. I know that's painful for those of you who've done that. Many of you have lost spouses who have run off from the marriage, maybe run off with another person. You know what it is to be forsaken, to know that acid disintegration of your own personality, just wondering who are you, what is life all about, and why does this happen? Many of you have lost your friends. I wonder how many, if we were to take a survey tonight, would say that you once had someone you called your best friend, but you never see that person or talk to that person anymore. In fact, probably some of you would say, I've had two or three best friends like that. It makes you feel pretty lousy to be forsaken, to have people forget the good times you shared, the loyalty you're supposed to have for each other. Many of you know what it is to be bewildered at the senseless loss of human compassion and human love. And as I've already indicated, I think the nagging question, for some of us, the obsessive question becomes, why God? And it hurts so much more because the question goes up unanswered. This text isn't specifically about this, but I would like to make just a small application because I think many of you do hurt about these things like I hurt about these things. I just want to share with you uh, my own testimony that it is, I believe, a great, immense consolation when you can't figure out why you should be suffering this agony. When you're confused about what God is doing with your life, when it doesn't seem to make any sense at all, it's of immense consolation to recall that Jesus, too, cried out, why? I know for a long time I punished myself thinking I was not being a very good Christian. In many ways I wasn't, but on this point I was not being a good Christian because I wanted God to speak to me and tell me why. Why do I have to hurt like this? Why do I have to be forsaken? Oh, I tell you, this text came back to me with such a jolt when I read it. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth in this statement is why. Many of you know the crushing, I think, and stinging pain of injustice as well. You know what it is to have a sense of being violated by other people. You know what it is to feel personal indignity at the way you've been treated. Many of you know what it is to go a long time with unhealed wounds because of the way people have dealt with you. And then again, the plaintive cry goes up, often the uncomprehending question, why? Maybe repeatedly it goes up. Maybe it goes up so often that it almost numbs us to a sense of what is right and what is wrong anymore because there seems to be no justice. But my point is that when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that agony was unequaled by anything we've been talking about for the last few moments. There is nothing in human experience that can match the agony of Jesus crying out to God about being forsaken. Think about it for a minute with me. Somebody might say, well, Dr. Bonson, David understood it because Jesus is quoting David's words. David knew what it was to be abandoned by God. Wrong. David did not know what it was to be abandoned by God. 
How do I know that? Well, actually, you don't even have to go and study the life of David. Just read to the end of the psalm and you see that David knew that he was not abandoned by God, but he felt it was that terrible. None of God's people know what it is to be abandoned in this way. And I say that with shame because, as I've already told you, I have felt forsaken by loved ones and sometimes by God because of what loved ones have done to me. You, too, have felt forsaken by God. But there is nothing in our experience that compares to what Jesus went through on this day. Because for all of what we suffer, God continues his goodness to us. He nourishes us. You know, we sometimes have to stop and count our blessings. Name them one by one. Wear out a few chairs while we're doing it. And in the midst of our worst as God's people today, we have it so good. And you know, unbelievers don't know what it is to be forsaken by God, even though they don't walk with him now. You see, I've hurt. I know what it is to be put down. I think I know what it is to suffer injustice. But through all of that, I knew that I had God. I knew that he'd given me so many things. And you say, but the unbeliever doesn't have God. The unbeliever doesn't walk with God. The unbeliever doesn't have the presence of God in that way. Doesn't have the joy of the whole nation. That's true. But even the unbeliever has God's common grace. God still sends sunshine and rain on the unbeliever. God still sustains unbelievers. We see a common grace. But then you're thinking, okay, Dr. Bonson, when they die, then they know what it is to be forsaken by God. Well, of course, when they die, if you're in unbelief, it will be a terrible, terrible experience. But it will still not be what Jesus underwent. For the Bible tells us he suffered not simply in spirit, but also in body. And say, so okay, well, Dr. Bonson, when Jesus returns and judges the living and the dead and sends men into hell in body and soul, then they will know this kind of forsaking. But no, they won't. Because even in the depths of hell, the unbeliever will not know what it is to suffer unjustly. Yes, it will be horrible. The gnashing of teeth, Jesus says, so painful. But in hell, the unbeliever will know he or she had it coming. But Jesus didn't. Do you see what I mean when I'm talking about the unequaled agony of what Jesus went through here when he cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, in the Greek, you don't see this. And forgive me for going into the kitchen, but I've got to tell you this. Matthew puts the me up forward in the sentence to give it emphasis. My God, why me have you forsaken? Turn in your Bibles, please, to John 16, verse 32. I'd like to give you some sense. It's minimal, but some sense of how dreadful this would have been for our Savior, especially to go through this experience of being forsaken by God. John, the 16th chapter, verse 32. Jesus is having another one of these lessons with his uncomprehending disciples. In verse 32, we read these words, Behold, the hour comes, yes, is come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. At this point, Jesus makes the point to the disciples. He says, the day is coming. In fact, it's right at hand when you're all going to scatter. And when he says, leave me alone, he's not saying that like the parent does to the child. Leave me alone. I've got to finish the bills or something. Jesus means you're going to abandon me. You're going to leave me isolated. And he says, but the Father, the Father is with me. And that's true. There is no contradiction between that and what happens here. 
Jesus also knows so very well the agony that he's going to go through that in the garden he even as the Son of God prays if it were possible take this cup from me Jesus knows that the Father must at that point turn his back nobody can ever suffer the agony of abandonment as did Jesus secondly see this as objective agony there are some people that wonder about uh, the hypostatic union at a point like this is that what you were thinking about hypostatic union is theologian talk but it's it's good I think for everybody to learn about it and I trust most of the people in this room have heard about that if you don't already know what it is hypostatic union is the way in which theologians speak of the divine and human natures of Jesus coming together in one person hypostatic refers to the Greek word hypostasis there's one substance but two natures God and man and you see why people might wonder how this can be how can Jesus if he is the God man say my God why have you forsaken me how can God forsake God some wonder how God could abandon himself and so it's probably good if just for a moment we do a little theology and I remind you that when Jesus suffered on the cross it was the person of Jesus who suffered but he suffered with respect to his human nature the divine nature of Jesus did not die on the cross the divine nature cannot suffer any want or deprivation God is say. he is independent he requires nothing Jesus took a human body and a true human body to himself according to the teaching of the Bible and our catechism you may remember he took a true human body to himself that he might suffer and die for his people and so as Jesus cries out about the abandonment of God the Father it is of course Jesus with respect to his human nature that is suffering that deprivation and abandonment but that's not the reason most people have trouble with this I mean the hypostatic union may trouble a few but other people wonder about the abandonment even of the person of Christ with respect to his human nature they don't wish to say that Christ was in fact abandoned by God they find that incomprehensible who are we talking about here the one who is holy harmless and undefiled he cannot be abandoned by God God cannot be so unjust as to do that and so interesting things are done down through the centuries perhaps the most fascinating is in the apocryphal gospel of Peter this is a gospel allegedly written by Peter it wasn't it's apocryphal it's full of many things which are really an embarrassment but in the account of Jesus death the gospel of Peter has Jesus crying out my power my power you have forsaken me you see it's so embarrassing to think that God would turn his back on his son and so whoever this writer was he has Jesus crying out I'm powerless I'm powerless look what's happened to me that isn't the agony of Jesus that he was powerless but there are other commentators evangelical commentators even in our own day who sometimes make out Christ's cry as merely subjective feeling the expression of abandonment it's not as though Jesus has been truly objectively in fact abandoned out there by God but inside his soul he suffers such agony and despair and desolation that it feels like that and so he cries out my God why have you forsaken me let me quote just one 20th century commentary that says for an awful moment even the love of the father seemed to have been withdrawn from him if you had been reading this commentary would you have quickly pulled out your pen and circled that word seemed to have been withdrawn from him surely the desolation which Jesus felt would have been 
at its lowest subjectively when he cried out to God in that fashion. I don't doubt that. But it is crucial that we understand the integrity and the holiness of our Savior. Even when in agony, he talks to God. For you see, if Jesus says, why have you forsaken me? And he has not truly been forsaken. Then he has brought false accusation against the Almighty. It's as though I had come up to you and I said, when did you stop beating your wife? You say, well, I never started beating my wife. But in the way in which I asked the question, I have taken an assumption as fact. Is Jesus saying, why have you forsaken me? Taking an assumption as fact? It seems like you've forsaken me, so I ask you, why have you done that? I don't think you need to be logicians for your soul to cry out against that. Of course not. When Jesus said, why have you forsaken me? It's because he had been forsaken. I know that commentators have trouble with that. I do too. But you can't deny what has taken place just because it's troublesome. In fact, I dare say that it's just because of this statement of Jesus that he was abandoned by God that the day we call Good Friday may celebrate the most awesome aspect of the whole gospel account. C.S. Lewis, in his book Miracles, discusses in a very interesting way, I was fascinated when in college I read this, Lewis says that the resurrection is a great miracle. In fact, he organizes many of the miracles of Jesus around the resurrection. But he says the incarnation was a greater miracle. And the reason he says that is he says, if you know who Jesus is, if you know the power of God, if he is the God-man, then in a sense you can almost take it for granted he'd rise from the dead. Of course he can defeat death. He's the God-man. He says the great miracle, the wonder, is that God would become man. And there's something to that. Although my guess is what we do is, depending on the day we're preaching, we decide that's the most awesome part of the favor. <laughs> I don't think it's just that today when I say to you. There's a sense in which this even goes beyond the awesomeness of the incarnation. And the reason I say that is stop and think about who became incarnate. It's the Creator. Of course he has the power of life. He made human nature. So in a sense, you could say, yeah, of course, God has the ability to become man and to give life where there wasn't any and so forth and to raise the dead. What is totally mind-boggling, though, is that God could abandon his son. See the unequaled agony of your Savior. See it as objective agony, truly abandoned by God. But if you want to understand what Matthew is teaching you, see this as atoning agony. The story is not here to teach us that Jesus must really like us a lot if he went through all this. Yes, you can chuckle at that. I, I understand it's, it's almost pathetic, isn't it? But that's what some people think the death of Jesus was all about. Jesus, to, to create this sense of pathos within us. And we're overwhelmed by that, and so now we want to live for God. Just this week, I read in the paper up in Orange County, a woman, undoubtedly a Roman Catholic, because of the kind of piety that she expressed and the kinds of analogies she wanted to draw. But nevertheless, she's writing in the paper because she's out there on the lines at abortion clinics protesting abortion. And, and praise God for that. I'm glad she does that. She should. And you should too. But now she's writing to the paper two weeks. She says, during this Easter week or something like that, it, it, it's good for us to reflect on what Jesus went through. And then she does this and she draws parallels to what she and the other people at the abortion clinics go through. Specifically, how people went by and taunted him. She talks about people driving down the street and yelling obscenities at them and so forth. And I don't make light of that. I think people are courageous to stand out there, you know, for life and so forth. But she's theologically so far off the mark that it's shameful. 
to liken what she has gone through in any sense to what Jesus went through when he died on the cross and was mocked and despised, rejected of men. Matthew tells us just how unequal it is when he says Jesus was abandoned by God. So what is the answer to Jesus' question? Why did God do that? Why did God forsake him? David Dixon is a 17th century Scottish minister who wrote a commentary on Matthew. And will you forgive me if I just read to you this? I mean, it was so choice. Here, I'm almost done with my sermon and I'm reading this. I said, those Puritans, boy, they knew what it was all about. He puts it this way. He says, our sins deserved that we should have been utterly forsaken of God. For it behooved our Redeemer to taste a little of the hell of being forsaken ere we could be redeemed. To put it very simply, Jesus was made sin for us. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, or as Paul puts it in Galatians 3, Jesus was made a curse bearing the curse of sin and bruised for our iniquities and said Isaiah in this Jehovah will lay on him the iniquity of us all God wasn't simply trying to engender pathos when Jesus cried out why have you forsaken me God was not simply trying to communicate how serious he is about sin and trying to deter us from sinning by showing the dreadfulness of this punishment. No, God was laying on Jesus our sins, our iniquities. He was laying on Jesus the very penalty that is due for our transgressions. And what is it that our sins deserve? If you never understood it before, I hope you understand it tonight in this saying, your sins call for God to forsake you in our darkness. When Adam sinned against God, he was no longer worthy to walk with God in the garden. And he was expelled from paradise, forsaken for sin. The Israelites, who were truly a sinful lot, if any, God kept at a distance from his Shekinah glory. Indeed, there was a very thick curtain put up before the Holy of Holies to keep his people at a distance because sin makes God forsake you. Of course, there are pictures of atonement there to be sure, but what I want you to see tonight is the distance of the people. They couldn't approach God. They couldn't come into the holy presence of God. Matthew gets done with what we're talking about here, he will tell us that veil of the temple was torn miraculously, opened up so that everyone could now come before God. But in the old covenant, sin makes God forsake you, puts you at a distance. He is too holy to look upon sin. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. It's because of sin that God turns away and forsakes. It's because of sin that he hides his face. And what is hell? Hell is the ultimate judgment. Depart from me, you cursed. You cannot be in my presence. I forsake you, I abandon you, now forever. 2 Thessalonians 1, Paul says of Jesus when he returns, he will punish those who do not know God. They will be punished, listen, with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. So why was Christ abandoned by God? 
Why did he cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was abandoned by God so that we wouldn't be. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight with broken hearts. Our hearts are broken because we are so sinful and unclean. We do not deserve to stand before you. We do not in ourselves deserve to be heard by you or cared for. But Lord, our hearts are broken tonight for a much deeper reason than just the guilt of our sin. Our hearts are broken because of your love. Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us and loved us so eternally and securely and consistently and passionately that you would not turn away from the cup of suffering and not simply the physical suffering and the agony of the cross and the lashes and the mistreatment of men but you loved us so much that you would suffer to be forsaken by God so that we wouldn't be. Lord Jesus, take our lives and use them for your glory. Take away our bitterness. Take away our sense of sorrow take away every sense that we lack anything and make us perpetually remember your cry. My God, why have you forsaken me? That we would never feel forsaken. That we would remember even in the midst of the abandonment of our own lives, sorrows and pains and desolation, that we will never undergo that. And that's worth living for. And that's worth singing about. And that's worth rejoicing over. We do not rejoice, Lord Jesus, because you hurt. We rejoice because in your hurting, you loved us. And we pray in your precious name. Amen.